Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets and welcome to the first in a brand new series of Signal or Noise. It is great to be back after two months off and boy, have we got a lot to talk about. We're actually going to be focusing this episode on the biggest story that's really been happening and still unfolding since we've been away and that is the reopening of China. And to do that, let's meet our panel. On the far end there is Gary Lawrence, CIO and founder at Profeta Investments, but seasoned investors may remember Gary as the man who used to run Perpetual's global and Asian equities funds. Immediately here is Jonathan Wu, Chief Investment Specialist at Premium Asia Funds Management. And you will notice that our regular guest Diana Messina is not with us this particular episode. She's on the road, but we are very lucky to have her boss with us, Shane Oliver. Lovely to see you, Chief Economist and Head of Investment Strategy at AMP. Welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Let's start with really the, the biggest implication from deciding to reopen, and that is, of course, the surge in new Chinese COVID cases. And to that, here is the chart from our friends at Macrobond Financial. Now, what we've done is that we've sourced the data from the Chinese health authorities, so you may want to treat the trend rather than the specific numbers as gospel. But there is one recent estimate that has suggested that 80% of the population has now had the virus at some point, and officially, there have been 75,000 deaths since the reopening at the very end of 2022. But the question I really want to pose to the panel just to start things off is, you know, has China's reopening done enough for Australia to avert the worst of a, a deep or a US-led recession, or is it too late? Maybe Shannon, I throw it to you first on this one. Signal or noise? I think it's signal. And I think this is very good news. Um, it seems to me that parts of the world, some countries think that the best outcome for China is to have stayed uh, locked down um, rather than reopen. Um, and so uh, it, they are sending a very uh, confusing signal to China. But I think you have to see this overall as a positive. Reopening will boost the Chinese economy. Last year was a pretty depressed year for China. 3% growth or thereabouts. That was the official numbers. Uh, this year, you're looking at growth in China of around 6%. On its own, given its share of global GDP on a purchasing power parity basis, that will contribute, that acceleration in Chinese growth will contribute about 0.6 percentage points. So yes, you're going to see depressed growth in Europe and the US, possible recession in one or both of them, but that will be partly and significantly offset by what's going on in China, which I think is one factor why Australia will be able to avoid a recession, or if we do have a recession, it will be a very mild one. What's your own forecast, Shane? I know you, you and your, your team look very closely at the Chinese economy, not just because obviously the relationship we have with, uh, with China, but how do you guys reconcile the, the differentiation, I guess, between the, the data? Obviously, we get official data and then you get the private sector data from, from Tyson. How do you put that all together to come up with a, with a forecast? Well, look, that's always a source of confusion and some people can't understand the difference. It's a bit like in Australia, you've got three or so different sources of house price data which mm. can give you different pictures at points in time. Similar story in China, you have the Taishin, hopefully I've pronounced that correctly, uh, PMIs, business surveys, and you have the NBS, National Bureau of Statistics, business surveys. Over time, you find the trend in the, uh, is the same. But interestingly, the National Bureau of Statistics PMIs fell to lower lows in December, and they've had a stronger bounce back in January. Now, the Taishin private uh, survey, it's basically a private company survey, um, had a similar pattern, but less extreme. Interestingly, the private survey focuses more on smaller businesses. So in that sense, you could argue it should be more stable, but it hasn't turned out that way. But the basic picture you're getting from both surveys is the same. Yes, the lockdown was horrible for business conditions, 
and for GDP, but we're now seeing a big rebound, particularly in the numbers that came out for January in the last week. Whether you look at the, the private survey or the NBS, same picture, um, particularly on the services side, not so much on the manufacturing side, because it, it wasn't hit as yeah. much in the first place. And that's the thing we always say on this show. It's not just about the numbers, it's about the trend. It's about extrapolating the trend from the numbers as well. Gary, what's your own take on the signal or noise? Look, I agree that there's definitely a, a strong signal there, but there is a lot of noise at the same time. Um, and the issues with the data that we're seeing coming out of China is that firstly, you've got this reopening, but then you had a COVID wave um, so that the waves dampened uh, economic activity in December. Um, and now what we're seeing is that Chinese New Year has actually fallen in, in January instead of February. So, you know, there's a lot of noise in the data coming out at the moment, but I do agree that the there is a signal that if you take a more medium term view, China, uh, the, the growth and, and the economy will definitely be accelerating this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jonathan, it's funny, I was reading some, some research from, from ANZ today. They're, they've got an estimate out that suggests that if we see all those Chinese students that were here before the pandemic and if they all come back, could add 0.4% to Australia's GDP over the next two years. What do you think, signal or noise? I think broadly speaking, I think it is a signal. I think it's a positive signal. Um, I think one of the things that we do need to take within context is which part of the GDP calculation is going to be from the consumer part. Because at the end of the day, the Chinese government this year, after all the lessons they've learned post-GFC, do want to ensure that the consumer is the spearhead. Okay? And right now we're sort of seeing what we call revenge spending, okay, or revenge consumption, which is what we saw in Australia, the US post lockdowns. And, and the fact of the matter is that depending on how long that lasts and how long that is sustainable, it will then drive the data dependency on how much the government needs to step in to issue local government bonds, which will boost fixed asset investment, things like that, to basically top up growth. Because the reality is there's also a political side. And the political side is that after Xi Jinping reconfirmed another five years late last year, he got a whole new cabinet. And as part of that, this whole new cabinet post, you know, given the, the shocking numbers we saw last year, they need to prove that they're worth where they've been positioned, you know, mm. this year. So it is also likely that we'll, in March, when the next working group meetings come out, that the Chinese government will actually target a GDP growth rate higher than what most people expect, including the IMF of 5%. We think mm. they'll probably might shoot for even 7%. Topic number two, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a 180 here. We're actually going to start this with a statistic from Morgan Stanley's Hong Kong team. Now, they recently suggested that they see 14% upside in the MSCI China index this year. And not that long ago, mainland Chinese equities actually entered a technical bull market, the CSI 300, up 20% since November. But is it too much too soon? Let's put up this quote from Ken Chung at Mizuho Bank, who's probably got an opinion on this worth reading. This is what he wrote in a recent note. Markets have high expectations for China's data to show real improvement in February, but that's still far from certain. Gary and Jonathan, you both know probably the, the Chinese equity market probably better, better than most, but Gary, I might start with you. Signal or noise? Uh, signal. Uh, so I do, do think that the market has got, got it right that, uh, you know, firstly, Chinese equities were too cheap. Um, there was a lot of fear around, I think, the war and, you know, how the West treated Russia and the concern that potentially China would be um, affected the same way. And so I think there was a lot of Western flow and, and Western selling of Chinese equities um, in Hong Kong. Uh, and that created some incredible opportunities in terms of valuations. Um, 
once the world sort of started realising that you know China's going to shift towards um, moving away from their COVID zero policy, um, as well as you know reduce risks around there being you know any military confrontation between China and the US. Uh, I think you started to see more Western money going back into Chinese equities. Um, and so we've seen quite a big rally. Um, and I think it's quite fair because it's, it's a double benefit of, you know, you're starting to see valuations rise. Um, they're still probably below long-term averages. Um, but then also you, we, we do expect the, the economy to start improving. Yep. Jonathan, what do you think? Signal or noise? I actually think it's more of a noise, but I think I'm taking it from the perspective of an active stock picker. Because mm. one of the things that we've seen is, we believe that right now the rally that we've seen, however you want to measure it from November or December, um, a lot of that is what we call reversion to mean. Okay, Because we're very careful at the moment of looking at companies and saying, okay, it's great if you compare to previous comparable you know, earnings from two years ago, yes, there's a massive jump. But the reality is we need to confirm that their business model was it any different to pre-COVID? Because if they're just earning what they were with a little bit of growth compared to pre-COVID, that's just a reversion to mean. Mm. And so there are some sectors of the economy where we find is actually the market is a bit ahead of itself. So if I take an example, like say EVs, and, and you know it's a very big hot topic, and we don't actually have a single EV stock in the portfolio. And the reason for that is it's very, the, the street is looking at what was sold last year, which was 5.7 million units and saying the market is projecting these companies combined will sell some between eight to 12 million units. Mm. That's the street and then that's implying into the valuations. We don't think that's actually possible, okay? Mm. Given there's, all, there's all, a lot of other factors that we don't have time to go into. But we think that that's far less predictable. Okay, so we think that those companies are still trading too expensive. Okay, so it's this, this, all the money's gone back in and Gary's very right in saying a lot of Western money has gone back in, but it's pushed up the entire market. Whereas if we compare to another part of the consumption sector, which is white liquor, and I mean, you know, not Chardonnay, but you know, Absif mm. uh, and Johnny Walker, that part is a very predictable um, part of the consumption market that we can see that, you know, that there's earnings growth because there's price increases and supply is not a single, is not a problem at all. Mm. And that's gonna feed through to really predictable earnings growth for us. Now those stocks aren't necessarily trading that cheap either. And you know, most of that sector is trading at 30 to 35 times, but because it's predictable, we think that those are a better part of, of the market that we should participate in. Right. That's why I say it's noise because you have to look at the sector. Yep. Well, we'll come back to that on, on the both of you because I am interested in hearing both your, your views on kind of like entering the Chinese market directly as opposed to ETFs. Shane, I actually note that you wrote an article recently on this very website, the LiveWire website, of course, uh, on why Australian shares will outperform global equities. So what do you think, signal or noise? Well, I'd have to say signal because I wrote that, <laughs> I wrote that article. But uh, you know, if you just look at the last, uh, the period since 2009, the Aussie share market has underperformed. Uh, particularly in price terms, if you look at it once you allow for dividends, it's also underperformed, not as, but not as much. But a lot of the things that drove that underperformance are now reversing. And I think it, it, it became a little bit problematic towards the end because there was so much worry about China. Uh, Chinese economic growth, the pop politics in China, uh, the political tensions between Australia, the US on the one hand, and China, all of those things worked against our market to some degree. Uh, foreign investors were demanding a risk premium. Now, if some of those things are reversing, the Aussie share market is no longer overvalued versus the rest of the world. Um, you've got a situation where the situation around China is improving to some degree, particularly in terms of COVID. Hopefully, in terms of Cold War risks, although that 
balloon over China, obviously, yep. um, raises question marks about that. But I think if China can get onto a better footing for at least a little while, then that will certainly help the relative performance of the Aussie share market, at least for the next 12 months, even though I think we've probably come into a five to 10 year period of relative outperformance for Australian shares. Okay, well, there you go. So th this is what I just wanted to, to, to get. I understand, of course, you know, Australian shares outperforming global shares is a signal, but Chinese equities having further to run from, from here, you would say that's a signal as well? That's or? a signal for Australia on the positive side. All right, well, there you go. It, it benefits everybody. It's the, the whole downstream thing. Um, Gary and Jonathan, I, I'm interested in, in both your views, particularly on this next question. Um, because you both have investments on behalf of clients directly in Chinese companies through your funds. But I, I think most retail investors may be probably more familiar with the, the locally based ETFs, right, as their way of getting exposure into China. So I, I, I'd like to get your opinion. Do you think it's worth it for investors to actually do the legwork and invest in the Chinese companies themselves? Or is the easier option just as likely to, to do as well this year? Maybe Gary, I'll start with you. I do recommend to clients to you know either choose a, a an active manager that's investing in that space but if you do feel comfortable enough that you can do enough thorough research to actually pick your own individual stocks um uh that you know then then go ahead i think the biggest risk out of the etfs is that you you do get a very broad uh, array of businesses um in china there are a lot of state-owned enterprises uh which may not be run as you know, a capitalist type of enterprise that we would expect and necessarily for the interest of shareholders. So in our investments, we do try and invest in Chinese companies where, um, you know, they're founder run, owner managed, where they are running uh, to I increase the value of the shares over time. Yep. Um, there was a statistic I was uh, shown, I think, last week. It was actually from a consultant, and they said the Chinese A-share market over the 30 years is break-even. Literally, you made zero yep. percent. And one of those points, Gary, you, you explained really well just then, because a lot of the index was also made up of SOEs. Okay? And it's only been, what, probably the better part of 10 years where we've seen SOEs being restructured to be more profitable okay? in, the, in sort of a capitalistic, in a capitalistic way. Um, I think that even now, and you know, we've been doing this for 17 years, um, the market is still much more inefficient than Australia and the US, right? And you've also got the factor that I think the panel's already discussed about. China is one of those equity markets where it's very much subject to hot flows and outflows, right? Mm. Depending on you know, interest rates and, and you know, last March we saw the, 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 the highest record outflow out of Chinese equities for many years, right? And so, you know, the fundamental legwork that needs to be done is much more than, than what we see locally here. We do eight and a half thousand company visits as part of our business, right? And that's, yeah. that's, that's a lot of legwork that needs to be done. And a lot of air miles. And a lot of air miles, <laughs> yes. And, 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 and the fact of the matter is that, especially, you know, during COVID, one of the biggest challenges was a lot of people couldn't get into China to do your fundamental research, right? Either yeah. a mixture of lockdowns or things like that. So yes, fundamental research is, is, is incredibly important. I think the other point to note about ETFs, um, especially in the current environment, we think the market has done really, really well, but we, are th we believe in the next probably two months, there's gonna be some level of consolidation. Markets just can't continually go up like that, right? Mm. So market needs to digest, they need to wait for the next earnings season to come out, and then we believe the market will consolidate a bit before, you know, we still think it's, there's some legs for calendar year 23. Yeah. You mentioned property and iron ore earlier. I think you were mentioning it earlier as well, Shane. Um, I'm glad you did because the third topic concerns iron ore. It, of course, is the single most important commodity that we export to China and the risk of Chinese property defaults were all over the headlines last year. Just think of like Evergrande and Caissa, you know what I'm talking about. And of course, that directly affects our iron ore prices. 
And even though the country is reopening, home sales continue to remain in a slump as we look at this chart from Priapus IQ. So for the podcast audience, this is really just a graphic suggesting that real estate investment and sales continue to contract in 2022. And you know, revenue and floor space, especially in, in commercial areas and those big urban areas, continue to collapse by double digits. So what does that do for iron ore forecasts? Well, you've got two schools of thought here. Morgan Stanley thinks we could see $140 a tonne by next quarter, so less than three months from now. Macquarie has a full year target of $114 per tonne. And as of the day we are recording this, iron ore is $125 a tonne. What do we all think? John, I might start with you on this one. Signal or noise? Uh, I think there's probably a little bit of noise and I sort of alerted to it earlier. The, the, the property market has the, the structural changes that the government has basically you know, taken a steamroller to. Um, has decimated the market, okay? Because I think there's a there's there's two different things to, to view. You've got the market, and then you need to consider if there's any equity opportunity, right? Mm. And so, if you look at the fundamental part of it, as I mentioned, the psyche's changed. People are not buying property for investing, okay? So that they're not hoarding property. That's that's one point. Does China still need property? Yes, they do, okay? And they'll keep building, right? Um, so there's still there's this still replacement theme that they've got in 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 play here. Um, what we expect to see, though, is that you know. A lot of people are probably taking too much of a positive viewpoint with the uh, the removal of the three red line rule. Okay, the government just abolished that, you know, overnight and said, okay, property companies can go borrow to the hilter again and can do what they did before, you know, COVID. Um, but that doesn't change the investor psychology. Mm. And I think that you know, if we're using iron, if we're using property sales as a proxy for iron ore mm. price, partially, you know, not taking into account fixed asset investment by the government, yeah. I think that you know, iron ore may not be as strong as some people may forecast. Understood. Shane, what do you think? I know you look at iron ore pretty closely. Signal or noise? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of a lot of noise in in all yeah. of that. Um, geez, I, I mean, my basic view, and I, and I find forecasting the iron ore price really hard. It, but my basic view is that it's going to remain a lot higher than, say, the $55 a tonne that the federal government's assuming in their budget and that most analysts are assuming. Uh, and that's for the simple reason that we've gone through a period where Chinese growth was slumped because of the COVID lockdowns and all that sort of stuff and the property slump. But the iron ore price held up pretty well. I think we dipped below $100 for a little while there, mm. but we've remained pretty resilient. and. I don't really see anything changing that. I, I think the risks are, if anything, more on the upside than the downside. Um, but whichever way you cut it, it's good news for Australian resource company bottom line if they're iron ore companies. Um, it's good news for the Australian budget. Um, and overall, it's probably a good thing. But there's just, as I said, there's a lot of noise around mm. it trying to work out what, what's going on there. Nothing like a few extra billion dollars in the coffers. <laughs> Carry signal or noise? Uh, I agree. I think it's a bit of noise. Um, I, I just think that with the iron ore price, obviously you've got that's you know some some noise around the demand side, but how about the supply side? And you know I think that there's more supply coming on as well. Um, and so you got to look at the marginal cost producers out there and what they're producing at, and uh, it's still well below current levels. Um, so uh, yeah, I just think that also when you look at this, you know, Chinese property um, data, it, it's, it still seems to be quite volatile month to month. Thanks everybody. That was a uh, very engaging discussion. It's now time for our Charts to Watch segment. You remember how this bit works. We ask each of our guests to bring along one chart for you, the audience, to whet your appetites over and naturally all these charts are China inspired. Shane, we're going to start with yours, and, and you've got here, you know, GDP and activity growth, but 
you know, for, for people who are going to be able to view this and, and read the why, there's quite a few lines to go through here. So maybe talk through the, the lines and how it feeds into your bigger view on the Chinese economy. Well, there's, there's four lines on that chart there, which makes it fairly complicated. You've got the GDP line, which I think reads up on the right-hand side. The others, that's retail sales, industrial production growth, and fixed asset investment, call it investment basically, in China are on the left-hand side. And they're all annual growth rates. Um, obviously, the GDP numbers are quarterly um, when they come out. But what you can see there is quite a big slowdown recently as a result of the lockdowns and the COVID restrictions and consumers themselves staying at home and being cautious, um, I reckon what's going to happen, and this is why this chart's worth tracking, is that over the next 12 months, 6 to 12 months, you'll see a sharp rebound. Now, the business surveys, the PMIs that we were talking about earlier, um, suggest something like that is already underway. But I think the bulk of that rebound is probably going to show up through the uh, June quarter onwards. Thank you very much. Um, Gary, I think it was, it was one, one member of the panel certainly was talking about the consumer economy earlier. You're looking actually at household income growth. So talk us through this chart and maybe how it informs maybe some of the decisions you make as a money manager. Yeah, so we like to look at surveys to see how um, what people are thinking on the ground uh, in China. And, and this, this uh, chart shows you a survey of uh, different people in different income brackets and, and how they felt their incomes were going uh, last year and how they expect them to go this year and, and you can see in the chart that you know people felt that their incomes were down a few percent which is quite different to what the Chinese uh, government data was showing um, but I think it, it, it more fairly reflects what we actually saw in consumption and, and retail sales and what the companies were reporting. Uh, what, he, what is positive about this chart is that it shows that people are very optimistic about 2023 and they, they all see across all income brackets that they're um, incomes will be growing at you know close to that five percent. Uh, you know most of the panels expecting GDP growth as you know five percent plus, um, and I think that confidence will start feeding through into the to the economy and to uh, into consumption. Uh, so so we're invested in in companies that are exposed to the Chinese consumer, but then also there's a lot of other industries that benefit from that consumption, like advertising and technology. Um, so that that. That's what we feel um, the, the survey represents. Perfect. Thank you very much. Jonathan, you've brought along a, a chart of the Baidu Immigration Index, which I confess I've never heard of personally until you showed it to me. So talk us through the index and why it matters to you as an investor. So effectively, I mean, Baidu is Chinese Google. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's sort of two data inputs that go into the Baidu Migration Index. One of it is the mobility data. So in the same way Google tracks where all of us are and where are we moving, um, it tracks the movement of people. The, the second part of it is actually just tracking Baidu searches about immigration or I'm moving to this city. Okay. Is there good schools or, you know, what's the income levels and things like that. And they combine those two data lakes together to come up with this index. What people are seeing on the screen is effectively everything rebased to the 22nd of January, because the 22nd of January was Chinese New Year. And, they, and it's looking at all the data all the way back to 2019. And what's showing is that the level of that migration index in this uh, Lunar New Year was higher than even 2019. Okay. Now, there is a mean reversion part of that, okay, to, be, to be very clear, and that's what we talked about in terms of revenge, spe uh, revenge spending and revenge consumption. We're tracking that um, in order for us to work out what are the trends, okay, and the trends in terms of consumption, the trends in terms of which cities people are actually immigrating to or moving to, and therefore which part of the consumer sectors we think are more attractive and are more sustainable with structural growth. Because we have to, as I said, isolate partially, and this chart is showing, you know, 23 being very, very strong, we have to isolate that seasonal or what I call COVID adjustment. But I think it's very, very good data for us to use. 
There you go. That's it. That's it for our first show back. I hope you were able to take away something from that. Big thank you to our panel. Gary Lones from Profeta, thank you very much. Jonathan Wu of Premium Asia Funds Management, thank you. And thank you very much. Shane Oliver of, uh, of AMB. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, do subscribe to our two websites now, Livewire Markets and Market Index. Deanna will be back on the panel next month, and I can tell you that next month we're going to do an all commodities focus to mark one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Until then, thank you for watching. <laughs>